Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode number three of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek, and Bobby, we still don't have music. Mm, that's right. What, what do we have? <laughs> well, we've made progress since episode two. Now we actually at least are on iTunes. Oh, yeah? So we're a, little, we're a little easier to find for the now three and a half listeners we've managed to acquire. Please help us. Subscribe. Um, subscribe, and... leave a review, send us hugs and chocolate. Also, we've got a website. We do have a website. It's www.nationalsecuritylawpodcast.com. That's brilliant. Brilliant. I, no one will ever guess that. No one will. So, Bobby, this is you know our third podcast. It is Wednesday afternoon, February 8th at around 4.30 Central Time. My Super Bowl prediction tanked. No, but I was pretty close. Bobby was pretty close. Um, my wife is very happy. My wife's a big Patriots fan. Oh, wow. I'd say hi, but we both know she's not listening. Um, so we have a little bit of news in the national security space today, maybe. You know, it's fun to do this podcast, and as the, the week goes by, you wonder wonder what we're going to talk about. We start thinking about some sort of chestnuts that are always out there available to talk about. But you just know that by the time it's time to hit record, something will have happened. And uh, what it's happens like, it's, it's like the old expression, if you don't like the weather in New England, wait 10 minutes, right? If you don't have a, a topic for your national security podcast... <laughs> Check Twitter. Check Twitter. Um, so this morning, obviously, courtesy of the the always reliable and indefatigable Charlie Savage, right? We have um, a new leaked copy of a proposed executive order titled "Protecting America Through Lawful Detention of Terrorists and Other Designated Enemy Elements." Enemy elements is a new one to me. I like it. I tried to figure out if this was made any kind of like acronym, um, but no, there's no I was, acronym. I was trying to figure out where on the periodic chart uh, they have in mind. Oh, which elements? Yes, exactly. Unobtainium. <laughs> um, anyway, but so... so Gu- Guantanamonium. Guantanamonium. Wow. All right, we got to get focused. Seriously. So, Bobby, this executive order is striking. I mean, we have it in front of us. Um, we'll post it, obviously, to, the, to our Twitter feed if folks want to look at it, too. Um, it strikes me that this is a rather substantially toned down and pared down version of the draft executive order Charlie circulated a couple weeks ago that was really the focus of our very first episode. That's right. I got to say, I like this whole unintentional crowdsourcing model, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps on the part of whoever's sharing these out, quite intentional. But nonetheless, I like this crowdsourcing drafting. I really do actually, this does actually provide an opportunity for feedback that maybe is helping to create uh, pressure to make smarter policy. One of the things that we see here. Uh, And and I can already imagine you're thinking, smarter policy? Well, we'll get to that. Uh, One thing we see here is some of the stuff that was most controversial and potentially problematic about the first iteration that went public is just gone altogether. Right, there's no reference to the CIA or CIA detention. No reference to interrogation. Right, no repeal of the black site uh, ban executive order. Um, so, so Bobby, I, I, I'm hearing in your comment that you think that maybe some of the public discourse on the first draft may have had something to do with why this is such a more modest document. Is it that or is it that there are um, cooler and calmer heads within the administration? Secretary Mattis obviously comes to mind who might have prevailed upon the powers that be that without taking a position on whether there ought to be a, re, a revamped black site program, revamped CIA detention program, Now's not the time to do it. Well, so I can imagine a couple of things. First of all, it, it might well be that it was Mike Pompeo, the director of uh, the Central Intelligence Director, who's uh, sort of channeling the pushback on let, let's not uh, reopen the black side discussion, if you pardon the pun. Um, it could be that. It's also possible that actually none of that's gone away. It's just that there are now separate documents in circulation, that the, that the real consequence of, of the airing of the first early draft was 
uh, to encourage people to uh, uh, segment and compartmentalize, to use a relevant term, to compartment uh, who's got access to what. Uh, so it, it's entirely They're smoking out the people who are actually leaking. Could be. You know, uh, if, you're, if you're the leaker uh, or if you're sharing this stuff, uh, be mindful that the copy you're circulating may have a kind of a bit of funny font to it or perhaps uh, uh, some sort of pagination element that shows uh, which version it is that's now out there. Can you tell that Bobby and I have been teaching all day and this is the slightly late afternoon loopy version of our read of the executive right, order? We should really get more focused on that. All right. So, so, Bobby, we've got this two-page document. It's got four sections. Um, section one is a bunch of findings that I don't see anything too remarkable or surprising I, in. I think all the findings look like uh, the same sorts of things we've been hearing. No news there, I would um, say. Well, you know, the only thing I'll say is in section 1D, if folks have this in front of them, um, there is the the old chestnut about 30% of detainees from Guantanamo re-engaging or being suspected of re-engaging. We've talked before about how I think that number is deeply suspect. Um, but at the very least, you know, it's, it's, it's toned down in what work it's doing. Uh, yeah, it, well, and I would say that this isn't a different... Uh, version of that narrative than the one we've already seen. Right. So That's I don't right. think they're they're pushing the envelope differently. So section two, this seems to be where we, we start to get to the meat of the yep. order, right? Section two, titled Continuing State of Armed Conflict with Terrorist Groups, um, says the United States remains engaged in an armed conflict with Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and associated forces, no surprise to that point, mm -hmm. comma, including individuals and networks associated with the Islamic State. Bobby, your gut reaction when you see that language. So this doesn't surprise me at all to see that. And I think we had something similar before in the earlier iteration on who is it that would be subject to detention. The, the headline, if there is one here, is simply to remind us of something that I think we all know is true, which is the Trump administration is going to be entirely consistent with the Obama administration uh, on the idea that this conflict that originates with al-Qaeda and the Taliban has extended to the Islamic State, or when the Islamic State extended out from al-Qaeda, the conflict went with it, some version of that. And that uh, the prospective detention policy for the Trump administration, definitely they've got their eye on getting some Islamic State detainees into the detention system. So let's, so let's pivot to that, right? So it seems like Section 2 isn't really that interesting until we loop in Section 3. Yes. Right, and so Section 3 is titled Military Detention of Aliens at Naval Station Guantanamo Bay. Obviously, even before the first draft, we knew this was coming. Mm -hmm. um, Section 3A, subject to further direction from the president and consistent with the requirements of law, not specified which laws, yeah. uh, the Secretary of Defense shall maintain and continue to use detention facilities at Guantanamo for the detention of enemy combatants captured in the armed conflict described in Section 2 of this order, including folks captured after the effective date of this order. So Bobby, clearly, as you say, contemplating detention, not just of similar folks to the 41 men who are at Guantanamo now, but perhaps with the twist of the Islamic State. Right. And, and perhaps also bearing in mind uh, the recent uh, ground raid in Yemen, this may also, the, the interesting cases won't just be future captives who are Islamic State associated, but also people coming from perhaps Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or various other Al-Qaeda franchises that remain part of the Al-Qaeda network. Um, Section 3B re revokes uh, Executive Order 13492. That's the Guantanamo closure order. This, I think, is no surprise. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, in contrast to the first draft we saw, there's no discussion of 13491, the Black Site order. Right. That, I think, really has been hived off. I really don't think that's gone away entirely. I think that the many issues, including some we talked about, uh, not to mention the, the sheer sort of uh, omnibus nature and the, the, the awkwardness of that in the first draft all combined to encourage somebody 
to just make this a standalone draft executive order. Now, now, Bobby, the rest of Section 3 reads to me like someone who actually knows this area of law very well wrote the rest of it. So Section 3C um, says, Nothing in this order shall affect the authority of the Secretary of Defense to detain enemy combatants in other facilities, right? This is obviously not saying we're going to have other facilities, just mm-hmm. that we're leaving the door open. Yeah, Steve, that really caught my eye. I thought that was very interesting because on one hand, you could view that as just an innocuous bit of sort of lawyerly boilerplate. We're, you know, we're just saying this, nothing here affects anything else. Um, I, I'm not so sure for reasons I think we should talk about in a minute. There, there is this question of if, if and when they do get their hands on a new potential long-term detainee, will that person really be brought to, brought to Guantanamo? Is that really even from their own perspective the, the smart move? So, we're, yeah, we, I mean, we should talk about that because I think that's the pivot out, which is, right. you know, what are the next steps under this order? Right. So, listeners, this is a placeholder. Section 3C of the executive order, I think, conspicuously goes out of its way to point out that all this talk about Guantanamo in this executive order is not meant to cast any doubt on the possibility that detention could instead take place somewhere else. And it's worth reminding everybody, right, there's no limit in any existing statute to Guantanamo, right, as opposed to other places outside the, the United States. Right. It's sort of, it's got a lot, there's a lot in statute that makes Guantanamo a, a road motel where you can't, well, that, I think I think it makes it not preferable well, in some ways, indeed. right? It's, yeah. it's hard to get out once you're there, but there's nothing that affirmatively pushes That's into right. it, That's ex- right. except insofar as, uh, well, no, I'd, I'd leave it at that. Nothing pushes into no, it. No, I mean, the 2005 Detainee Treatment Act had a lot of references to Guantanamo, which Congress cleaned up in 2006 mm-hmm. to make it about right. anyone detained under the you know military detention. But for, for many years, we had many detainees yeah. in Afghanistan. Totally. For a while, we had Iraq. endless detainees in Iraq. So uh, the only question is, what are the other facilities that are available? We'll, we'll get to that in a second. Let's so, so really quick, let's march through the rest of three, Section 3. Um, section 3D is where I start thinking that there are, are smart lawyers finally uh, at work, right? Section 3D is basically saying um, there's nothing in the order that prevents SecDef from transferring detainees to affect orders affecting the disposition of their case issued by a court or competent tribunal in the United States. This is, Bobby, obviously deeply consistent with the yearly transfer restrictions that Congress has legislated since the FY mm-hmm. 2011 National Defense Authorization Act, which has always had an exception for transfers to satisfy a court order. Yeah, were you, were you surprised, Steve, to see this actually acknowledged in here? Um, yes, until I read the whole document and realized that whoever wrote this knows what they're doing. Yeah, it, it's it's quite clear that any attempt, I'm not saying that anyone was planning to do this, but had, I'm sure there were some people who wondered whether the Trump administration might be contemplating an assertion of authority to disregard a court order if somebody wins a habeas case. Right, that's right. Uh, disregard a court order. I think that that's a pretty surefire loser to have tried that, and it looks here like that's that's been accepted, and whoever's drafting this understands there's no point tilting at that windmill. Let's, uh, let's be, And so, therefore, let's be clear and, and put in a point that people can say, look, they're acknowledging that a judicial order to release somebody who wins their habeas case, that's a ticket out. And, and in that regard, Bobby, I mean, this reads like it could have been an executive order issued by any of the Republican candidates for president, right? That, that this is the exact policy we would have expected from just about any of them. And I think this is what the rule would have, this is what you would have seen in the Clinton administration as well. You think she would have, she would have kept it open? Oh, no, no. But I think the policy oh, would have Oh, been, oh quite. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then finally, Section 3E. Well, let me, let me back that back <laughs> up on that. Absolutely should have kept it open. I don't think she would have been any more successful in actually closing right. it. Than Wanted to keep was. it open. Wanted. Yeah, well, of course she's in hand grenades. Um, all right. So Section 3E, this is actually just saying nothing in the order affects existing law or authorities relating to the detention of U.S. citizens, lawful resident aliens in the United States, or any other persons who are captured or arrested in the United States. Yeah. That language might seem awkward to our listeners. There is no such thing as a lawful resident alien. 
Italian. Um, folks, this is a word-for-word -word copy of the so-called Feinstein Amendment to the FY 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, which was just basically preserving the status quo of those authorities right. for citizens everywhere, um, for basically, I think they meant LPRs, green card holders everywhere, and for anyone else captured or arrested in the right. United States. This, this goes to this incredibly sensitive, but at least currently just entirely perspective, indeed speculative issue of what if there's a, there's a situation in the United States as, as has happened a few times with uh, in the Obama administration, there's a terrorist incident, and then when a person's arrested, there's there's criticism saying, hey, that person should be put into military detention, and and as, as Steve, you know uh, better than anybody, there's a there's a huge amount of legal uncertainty surrounding whether and in what circumstances the courts ultimately would allow military detention. Uh, whether it's a citizen or a lawful permanent resident or otherwise, if you're captured in the U.S., would this uh, say, say something for our listeners about a brief summary of how the prior litigation <laughs> with Padilla and Almari, how that left, you know, basically clutter on the legal highway? Oh, man, is it cluttered. Um, so the short, short version, right, is we've held two individuals who were picked up in the U.S. in military detention since 9-11. Jose Padilla is an American citizen who was picked up at O'Hare Airport. Mm -hmm. um, he was held in military detention for the better part of basically four and a half years, yep. uh, four years. Um, and right before Padilla's case went back to the Supreme Court the second time after the first time mm -hmm. they ducked on a procedural technicality, um, the government actually transferred him to civilian criminal prosecution in Miami um, and basically mooted his habeas petition. Yeah. And got a conviction. Uh, Got a conviction. Padilla is now in Florence, Colorado in the Supermax. Um, but most importantly, for present purposes, avoided any precedent one way or the other yep. on the legality of his military detention. And see, would you agree that it looked like, with, with Scalia still in the court at that time, it looked like it might go 5-4 against the government on whether a citizen captured in the U.S., could be detained in that way, and that it looked like it was going to be an ex parte Milligan ruling. So there's there's a way to read the tea leaves, Bobby, from the 2004 Supreme Court decisions to get to exactly that math. Um, so 2004, obviously, Justice Breyer joined in the plurality opinion in Hamdi upholding the military detention of a U.S. citizen captured on the battlefield in Afghanistan. Um, but Breyer also joins a footnote in Justice Stevens's dissent in Padilla, where the court ducks on a procedural ground, where he agrees with the other dissenters that Padilla's detention was unlawful. So if Breyer was going to split that difference between captured on the battlefield, captured in the U.S., and given Scalia's dissent was that no U.S. citizen could be detained without suspending habeas, that's how you get to five. Bobby, that's probably why the government mooted that case. I think that's probably right. That's That was my read at the time. And, and friends, if that's not inside, uh, you know, <laughs> case parsing, I don't know what is. No, but it's important, Bobby, because the, the lack of clear precedent one way or the other yeah. on detention, military detention of U.S. citizens arrested within the United States is something I suspect is going to get tested in the next four years. Hey, yeah, I, I, I bet it doesn't as to citizens. There'll be a lot of talk, but I bet they don't. That's well, so, so let's talk about Almari, right? So, <laughs> yeah, so now so change the fact pattern. For so part of the problem in Padilla's case is a 1971 statute called the Non-Detention Act, which says that no citizen can be imprisoned or otherwise detained by the United States except pursuant to an act of Congress. Well, Almari wasn't a citizen. He was here on a, I believe, a student visa. Mm -hmm. um, he entered the United States notoriously on September 10th. Uh, 2001, which I always thought was one of the government's best pieces of evidence. Yeah, um, right. Um, he's initially uh, indicted on, I think, computer fraud charges, right? Sort of non-terrorism related charges. The government then decides that they think he's an enemy combatant. They send him to the brig. He brings a habeas petition. Um, his case takes a couple years to get all the way to the oh, Supreme Court. Yeah. Provokes a 213-page 5-4 split on bonk decision by the Fourth Circuit. 
Um, the Supreme Court grants certiorari in his case to review the merits. The Fourth Circuit had said, yes, he can be lawfully detained, but only with rigorous due process. Supreme Court grants cert to review that decision. And on the eve of oral argument, after the Obama administration comes in, well, they indict him on criminal charges, transfer him to civilian court, and the Supreme Court issues what's called a Munsingware order, where it. they basically vacate the decision below and throw the case out. So now there's no precedent. Well, you know, having having slogged through all those many opinions from the Fourth Circuit, I gotta say, um, thank you for getting rid of it. Why didn't you do that before I read them all? <laughs> Seriously, it was it was it was quite a mess. But the larger point, I think, for present purposes, folks, is that what that means in practice is there's legal uncertainty yeah. when it comes to military detention of folks in the United States, citizens or otherwise, uncertainty that I very well could see this administration capitalizing upon if an appropriate could case were to present itself. And I think if it's a non-citizen, the odds are much higher that they'd actually do it. That you know, Some listeners will be sitting there thinking, well, what about Hamdi, Yasser Hamdi's Supreme Court decision? There's an American citizen ultimately held in the United States. That's different because he was captured in Afghanistan, and it was central to the court's analysis that, that those circumstances of capture were the, were defined as part of the ruling. And so we don't know. Right. That doesn't shed any light uh, on, on these other cases. So, so Bobby, so let's, let's, let's bracket, because I suspect we're going to have an opportunity to come back to yep. it, the stateside detention yeah. question. Yep. Um, under the executive order, right, we see, we know that the 41 DTs at Guantanamo aren't going anywhere. But now, you know, what's the next case? And and right. let's let, let me posit a hypothetical, and, and you tell me how the government will react, and how, if it were you, it should react, right? Yeah. Um, so the United States um, sends in a special forces team to capture a high value, let's say, ISIS combatant um, outside of Mosul. Okay. Um, we actually are successful in capturing him, right? It's not mm -hmm. a. It's, we don't end up. It's not a lethal operation. Right. He's on the helicopter. Right, he's flying back to let's say an aircraft carrier stationed off the you know the Gulf of of Aqaba, I guess. Right, what next? So I think that there's real interest. I'm I'm speculating there's real interest in the part of the administration to bring someone to Guantanamo who is an Islamic State detainee. Um, that would go powerfully with the grain of the narratives and the campaign promises and all the rest. Uh, and that part of what is going on here is a recognition that when it comes to adding new detainees uh, to uh, Guantanamo. This isn't any longer a story about grabbing Afghan Taliban commanders or fighters, and, and it's probably only in rare instances going to be core members of, of, of the Al-Qaeda senior leadership and so forth. We're really talking now about the, the more recently emerged organizations like the Islamic State and AQAP. So that, that obviously has interesting policy consequences, Bobby, but I guess legally, I mean, the, yeah. the, the D.C. courts have had some 60-odd Guantanamo detainees yep. who brought habeas petitions. There's a ton of decisional law recognizing fairly broad detention authority on yep. the government's part, relatively pro-government, anti-detainee procedural and evidentiary rules. Why legally, as opposed to just yep. politically and optically, would this be a really interesting moment? Well, the key is to emphasize that the, the most important statutory authority for detention right now is the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2012. It clearly and expressly provides for detention authority as to members of al-Qaeda, the Afghan Taliban, and associated forces engaged in hostilities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we have never had a habeas case out of Guantanamo because we haven't had Guantanamo detainees who present the al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula fact pattern or an al-Shabaab fact pattern or an Islamic State fact pattern. It really is a legacy population, Steve. It's, it reflects the, the conflict as it was in the early years after 9-11 when the place filled up. Uh, we just went through eight years of change in the nature of 
who the enemy organizations are. They're evolving. Uh, an eight-year period in which we didn't take any new long-term detainees, so the population no longer reflects who we've actually been bombing and targeting with lethal force. The uh, presence of a new detainee at Guantanamo, that person, of course, will have the same habeas access as the existing population. There's no question but that courts can and certainly will get a case to test whether the National Defense Authorization Act that I just mentioned or the and the underlying AUMF from 2001. This is the Authorization for Use of Military Force enacted on September 18th, one week after 9-11. Indeed, whether these really are properly construed to extend to the Islamic State. Now, this is so interesting because... How haven't the courts answered that question yet? Indeed. Well, who's got standing to litigate it? Well, so standing becomes a real issue. So we have this case, right, Smith versus Obama, mm -hmm. where an army captain tried to bring lawsuit... Um, challenging the, the ISIS being covered by the, in his case, the AUMF, right? Because it wasn't yes, a detention case. It wasn't a detention case. Right? Um, and the D.C. District Court throws it out for lack of standing because he couldn't show that he was injured specifically by that interpretation as opposed to just by being a military officer right. more generally. And we can add that, you know, obviously every single day there are there are airstrikes in Iraq and Syria targeting Islamic State uh, targets. If you're interested in that, Go to the Central Command website. Just look at the press releases. There's one every day listing the nature of the targets and individuals that they think they struck. So, so, so Bobby, so, so, so what you're saying, if I understand, right, is that we're going to have the first time that the Trump administration sends a detainee from ISIS or AQAP or Al-Shabaab mm -hmm. to Guantanamo, it's going to be a test case. Big time. Okay. Big time. Especially, now, AQAP, I don't think is a hard case. I think that... I think that the courts have effectively already accepted the principle of associated forces. I think the statute, the NDAA that I mentioned, clearly encompasses the associated forces concept. And if there's any good example on the al-Qaeda side that really is likely to work, it's going to be AQAP, in my opinion. The much more interesting case is the Islamic State. Now here, of course, the Trump administration will heavily emphasize that this wasn't an idea that originated with them. It's not ours. Yeah, they'll say, Obama did it. They'll say this is something Obama got right. That They'll say that the 2001 AUMF, and we should add, the separate and distinct 2002 authorization for use of military force that undergirded the Iraq invasion. We call it the Iraq AUMF for right. short. So the 9-11 so the AUMF and the Iraq AUMF both still on the books. The Obama administration uh, for a long period of time has man had maintained that those were applicable to the Islamic State. Um, in, in, in one case, on the theory that it's simply that it's formerly known as Al-Qaeda in Iraq. That's what the Islamic State is. And the fact that they broke with Al-Qaeda shouldn't allow them to exempt themselves as long as they're still uh, you know, engaged in the same types of activities. A very controversial claim that I will freely confess, and you can, you can find me in print online saying this, I thought it was preposterous when I first heard it because it just struck me as jarring to claim that a group that had broken up very publicly with Al-Qaeda was covered by the, uh, the AUMF. I, I will say over time I've, I've come to appreciate that there's a lot of force to the argument that it can't be the case that if, if, if Al-Qaeda in Iraq was still its name, it, they had this break where they just weren't taking orders. And let's face it, they weren't exactly an obedient franchise before. Um, it is a little problematic to think, in my opinion, that they can break with and, and walk out of the scope of the AUMF simply by virtue of that breakup. The more interesting question to me is, does the multi-year lull in which they had been driven to ground in right. Iraq and then we had departed militarily from Iraq, and at least as far as the public record shows, there just wasn't any 
interaction or, or more, more than interaction. I mean, I, I mean, I would argue rather forcefully that there wasn't a non-international armed conflict right on the ground in Iraq for at least some period of time. Well, this, this, that begs the question of is there a single global armed conflict with Iraq? And, and if you think that there is, as I do, um, I'm sorry, with Al Qaeda, then, then the question is: uh, Is did, this part of it? Is, did, did did they cease to be part of it by going partially defunct? And then reemerging in a time and in a place and in a manner in which we weren't engaged. So, so I, I grant you that that is the international humanitarian law question. Um, I am more wedded to the text of the September 2001 AUMF, the Authorization of the Military Force, which, um, in contrast to the initial proposal that had been submitted by the Bush administration, is quite emphatic that the targets, the subjects of the force that Congress was authorizing, are the groups, persons, nations, and organizations that were responsible for 9-11. Um, obviously, if Al-Qaeda just changed its name and called itself Bob. Um, hey, don't use that name. That Or, or uh, Steve. Um, that would be covered by the UMF. I don't think anyone has any problem sure. with that. right? If, if Germany changed their name to Schmermany, the declaration of war would not have to be repassed by Congress. But, Bobby, we did separately declare war during World War II against Germany's co-belligerents, right? We separately declared war against not just Japan and Italy, but uh, Hungary, right, Romania. And so I guess my question is, where's the argument for why a group that splits from al-Qaeda, that as a group did not exist in form or function on 9-11, that was not responsible for 9-11 attacks, is still covered by the statute? So to start with your World War II example, if, if we hadn't if Congress hadn't gone through the act of declaring war against some of the minor Axis powers, I think we still could have fought them. If they, if we were fighting in Europe or North Africa and some of the units there were fill in the blank, one of, one of the lesser Axis powers, and there had never been a declaration of war, I don't think the fact pattern would be that you can fight the German units, you can fight the Japanese units, but not the No, no, others. my point's more of a historical practice that we have in the past treated separate separately. If anything, that's a stronger case because you didn't have the Romanian government, for example, breaking from the Nazi government, right? Here right. we have a split. Yeah. No, I, just, I just think it's a separate issue. So the, okay. the question presented is, does the uh, breakage of eight, what used to be al-Qaeda in Iraq and its transformation to the Islamic State, did that pull it out from wh where they had previously been, which is within the scope of the AUMF as an associated force? Now, that assumes you accept as a baseline that there are associated forces that would count. So let's take one. Although, I mean, I mean, there you're helped by the by the fiscal year 2012 NDAA, which Absolutely. does expressly refer to associated forces, and I think, unlike the AUMF. I think, I, I think the effect of that was to ratify the, the larger AUMF interpretation that there are indeed for domestic law purposes, associated forces that, that are part of the Right, AMF. this is actually the, in Inside Baseball Speak, this is the March 13, 2009 DOJ memo, um, right, on the definition of who can be detained under the AUMF. So I think that if we look at AQAP as, as a more familiar example, I think, as I said a moment ago, very clearly a current associated force of, of al-Qaeda engaged in hostilities. If tomorrow afternoon, so so we all know, it's been the headlines, we've, we've had all these... Uh, you know, periodic engagements. We've averaged about 20-something airstrikes for the past five years against them in Yemen. If tomorrow they announce that they've just had it with Zawahiri, he's, he's not an attractive leader to them, and they really feel like they can just be independent and they're going to they're gonna do their own thing, but otherwise, nothing's changing. I mean, they still have all the same uh, operational goals and strategies and so forth. They're just no longer taking orders from wherever Zawahiri is. I don't think that at that moment we have to suspend operations. I think we continue on. And so that's not precisely analogous to the Islamic State, right. because you have a long break in time where they seem to have been degraded. But as I as, mean, the better part of five, six years. Um, 
it, it's interesting to kind of probe, like when exactly and it, to what degree did they degrade? Let, let's assume at least several yeah. years. So I think that's what makes it an interesting question. Mm -hmm. But I think the analogy to my AQAP example, which is meant to be an easy case for right. they don't right. get out just by I, 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 So I'm yeah. with you on AQAP. I mean, let's yeah. be clear. So I actually don't think we then disagree all that much. Uh -oh. I think we both agree. Yeah, this is, this is the whole gimmick, right? <laughs> um, the gimmick of the show. I think that what we're highlighting is that at least for us, the, the interesting question is, did AQI essentially cease to exist and come back as effectively a new entity that had to be analyzed afresh? And I think there are reasonable arguments going both ways on that. But Bobby, aren't there separation of powers reasons to read the AOMF narrowly in this regard? I mean, I'm with you. That is a pure matter of, of debate and, and public discourse, right? That's a close question, right? What, how do we treat the lull in Iraq? But I mean, ought we not to be inclined to read acts of Congress delegating the president the power to use lethal kinetic force um, broadly? I think that if it hadn't been the case that for, for years now, Congress has been pouring money into supporting operations against so the So Congress Islamic has State. acquiesced in this understanding. I think, that the, I think that the idea that there's a special se separation of power sensitivity where we should indulge a narrower interpretation of the statute lest we cut Congress out inappropriately is, is not applicable here because one thing's for sure, um, Congress seems entirely supportive. And that, that kind of leads to this interesting fact that Congress hasn't actually enacted a statute to just move this issue and say, yeah, here's here's a new AMF or an updated AMF. It's not for a lack of trying, right? Exactly. I mean, that's where that's where I'm going. Like they've every everybody just about, a few notable exceptions. Including but, us. Yeah, but but just about every member of Congress, it seems like, has gone on record saying, like, yeah, we should have a new AMF. We we support this conflict. Yes, there are some exceptions, but there's clearly a, a large majority that would favor some version of this. And and Steve why is it in light of that that under the Obama administration, since the president also said we should have a new AMF, and he, and he, and he proposed language? Yeah. So, so explain to our listeners uh, why that never happened. I, I, well, <laughs> politics. <laughs> um, I think the short version is is that yes, there was consensus there should be a new AUMF, but there was no consensus about what it should say. Um, and so, for example, there were widespread political disagreements about whether it should preclude the use of ground troops or some large-scale military deployment. Mm -hmm. There was a large-scale disagreement about whether it should have a sunset. Um, there was large-scale disagreement about what, if anything, it should say um, about the 2001 AUMF or the 2002 Iraq AUMF. And I think those three issues were basically... Um, insurmountable obstacles on Capitol Hill. I think that's right. So we have a new president and new Congress. At least some of this is going to drop out, right? So I think the majority, the, the GOP majority in Congress. Right. The combat troops limitation, I think, is now no longer that's a, a thing. That's no longer an issue. That was a poison pill for the Republicans before. It, it's Even though it was, an, and it, was, it was a matter of principle for the Democrats, but you know they're not going to have the votes. That, so I think that that drops out. There, there no doubt would probably not be White House interest in a sunset or anything that looked like an expand or a contraction of existing authority. Just sort of solidify this. Yeah, it, you can imagine, certainly there's a deal to be done here where there is some sort of almost one-liner saying the Islamic State counts. So so I guess, Bobby, then this, this all brings me back to where we started, which mm -hmm. is, you know, I think we both agree that the most interesting thing about this executive order is how clearly it opens the door for a test case, for for an ISIS detainee to be brought to Guantanamo to bring a habeas petition and to have the federal courts finally answer the question that many of us have wanted to answer for the better part of the last three years. Let's suppose that they find a district judge and at least a majority of the D.C. Circuit who's more partial to my view mm -hmm. of the relevant statutes than yours. Um, is that what finally provokes Congress to action? It should. And more to the point, it should provoke, because I think the will's there in Congress, if the president is willing to provide the political cover of actually pressing for this, 
this should be a consideration that the White House is thinking about. They may feel they may feel that look, we, we think we have the authority, whether it's an Article Two matter or an existing AUMF matter. But as a matter of sheer uh, prudence, it's the deal is probably there to be done. Find out, have those conversations, and if it is, get the clear legislative authority. So if and when you start not just killing Islamic State members, but actually detaining some, which they say they're going to do, it won't be a close question. So, so Bobby, let me ask you this. It, with all that said, why isn't the easier thing to do to not force the question? I mean, why, why not, if you're the Trump administration, live in the world of, of Obama-like indeterminacy on this question, right? Keep using kinetic force to the same extent that the Obama administration was. If you happen upon an ISIS person and you are not in a position to hand him over to the Iraqi authorities or prosecute him here criminally, you know, then and only then, but otherwise, any other option. Why, why force this issue right. if you're the Trump administration? Well, and of course, I think we understand there's, there's a larger political narrative about campaign promises. We're, we're simply going to, you know, this is something that we said we're going to do. Um, Damn the habeas petitions full speed ahead. Well, right, and, th and that there are optics to it, that this fits a narrative of being more aggressive than the last guy. So there, there's all that, but look, we're, we're not the experts on that. We'll, we'll move past that and just talk about other things we're not expert on. Um, there's obviously a claim or a belief in some quarters that uh, there will be interrogation and therefore intelligence gathering advantages to having long-term custody, once again, of people against whom we're currently fighting their organizations. That, If that's to take place, you know, one possibility is you have enough access to get what you need in sort of a proxy fashion by having host states like Iraq or otherwise uh, holding somebody. But there, there seems to be at least some sentiment that there's something unique and, and special and important about having our own long-term detention. If you, if you have an option other than Guantanamo or the, or the territory of the United States, and I don't think anyone thinks the Trump administration is bringing anyone from outside into the United States. For military holding. detention. So then the, the interesting question, which we're in no position to answer, but it's interesting to speculate on, is is there a circumstance in theater, maybe in the Kurdish region, is there a circumstance where we either can have something that really is a long-term or, or medium-term detention facility of our own, or something so close to that that's formally not our own, that they can get the intelligence benefits they think they want. Without the habeas. Without the habeas, without bringing them in. In other words, recreating what we had for a while there with Afghanistan, right. which is a two-track model in which you have some detainees who are in Afghanistan, and it's been litigated. They didn't get, Guant Guant get Guantanamo-style habeas review. Well, they didn't, get, they didn't get the suspension clause. I mean, so this is something we talked about briefly in one of our prior episodes. I, I am firmly of the belief, and will argue until I'm... I'm I'm out of arguments, um, that the subsequent case law of the D.C. Circuit has actually reopened the door to statutory habeas jurisdiction, but at least we'd have to fight over that, too. Yeah, well, and so there's another element of legal uncertainty that augurs in favor of simply going to Congress and getting clarity on the legal issue so that if and when there is habeas, whether right. at Guantanamo for or that somewhere future, else, or somewhere else, although, the merits are, although I, I, I will predict for you that as long as it's in theater in a combat zone abroad, there will not be habeas. Yeah. But... Um, at least moot this, the silly, this truly silly and only lawyers can argue about it question of whether there's domestic legal authority to fight the Islamic State. I mean, I, we've been fighting it for so long, it's crazy that it's still an open issue vis-a-vis -vis detention. And, and embarrassing, if I may say, for Congress. I mean, it, it strikes me and that... And the White House. It, for, yes, but listen, I mean, at the risk of getting on a soapbox for a second, you know, the... the Plenty of, of smarter people than us have written about the drift of war powers from the legislature to the executive branch over the second half of the 20th century and the earlier of the 21st century. Part of that drift happens through congressional acquiescence and indifference oh, sure. and apathy. No, I completely agree. The political science account that there's 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 many incentives not to go on record one way or the other on these things. Just ask people who voted in favor of the Iraq 
uh, authorization, and then later on have but, that. But then, but then it's but then it's hypocrisy for Congress to turn around and criticize the president, at least in this space, yeah. right, for abusing executive power that Congress has very happily allowed him to to pry from their legislative sure. hands. And in this case, it won't. But it won't be Congress you got to worry about. It's going to be the judge who later on gets this case. And so then you know so so that so the responsible way to go would be to legislate first. I have a funny feeling, Bobby, that we're going to get the test case first. <laughs> right. Well, there is a forcing function that could arise. And, and a president who seems perfectly happy to force the courts into those positions. You know, this has been such a heavy conversation. I, I'm in the mood for talking about something lighter hearted. Uh, you know, one of our listeners actually spotted on TV, Steve, that you and I had front row tickets to my beloved San Antonio Spurs the other day, which was, which was by the way, incredible. You're welcome. Fun. Thank you very much. And, and for the, the person who made that possible, that was really cool. Bob Hilliard, thank you. You're the best. Shout out. Um, your observations on the Spurs based on seeing it literally up close? How, so how so good my, are they? my scouting report on the Spurs, Bobby, is that without LaMarcus Aldridge and Pau Gasol, um, who we did not see, who were both you know sitting out that game, yeah. they really have problems um, you know, rebounding defensively. They really have problems with offensive flow. Um, even though they cruised to a win over the shorthanded Philadelphia 76ers, they really seemed you know, out of sync the whole game. They yep. didn't shoot very well. They didn't play the beautiful game that is the Spurs' hallmark, the passing game. And I think without someone inside, you're going to have teams extending their defense and making it much harder for the Spurs to actually get into that kind of rhythm. You know, Think about who they're going to face in the Western Conference playoffs. I don't think, to borrow your word, that augurs well. Yeah, so I think that uh, Coach Pop is, is brilliant, knows all this, and is going to rest his guys as much as it takes uh, and then bring them on the playoffs and, and our, our big guys will be back and ready to go. But the larger point is if you want a candidate for our second National Security Law podcast field trip, well, let us know on Twitter. Email <laughs> yeah, we're, us. We're always happy to hear it. I will say one recommendation for not our next field trip is Manchester by the Sea. Oh, tell me. I haven't seen it. So Karen, my wife and I went to see it Saturday night, Bobby. It was the saddest movie <laughs> I've ever seen. And I'm, I mean, I'm talking like, you know, Philadelphia and Schindler's List are romantic comedies what? compared to Manchester by the Sea. This sounds, and, it sounds, it sounds amazing yet awful. Well, so, so one way to look at it, it's a beautiful movie. It's made wonderfully. Um, it's going to win a bunch of Oscars. Um, and if you're really feeling bad about the state of the world, go watch Manchester by the Sea and the world will seem like such a better, happier, healthier place. Good heavens. I'm going to see La La Land instead. Uh, I'm going to sleep. <laughs> and on that note... Thanks for listening. Please uh, go and give us a rating. If you loved it or you hated it, tell us what you think on iTunes and share the link uh, with your friends. We'd appreciate it. Stay safe out there, everybody. Talk to you next week. Adios.